worried that you might be the cool kid You wear the latest fashions on top of all the trends Or have you ever worried you were too much in the mainstream Always so generic, more normal than your friends Well, we've devised a test to put to rest your fears There's no need to panic if you let us your ears Tonight you can't sleep easy after all that you've heard Cause if you like the show, then you're probably a nerd Welcome aboard, everybody, to another episode of the It's Canon Podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things Lego, the podcast where we talk about all things pop culture, the podcast where we talk about everything geek, everything Star Wars, everything that you could want to talk about, even wrestling sometimes, comic books. I'm telling you, it's all in canon. And this week we have a special episode being brought to you uh, with Tyler. Dale. So, yeah. This is the one we've been talking about. The what, what director is actually the most profitable? What is the best director to have behind your movie? And whether or not this all started the question of whether or not Zack Snyder and J.J. Abrams and Michael Bay specifically, I think it was those three. Yeah, those would be three of the usual suspects. That us. we were like, are these are these dudes really worth it? And I started going really obsessive into the data behind how much their movies cost to make, how much they bring into the box office, and whether or not that's worth it. So we're going to have some fun games, some fun discussions on that. We learned a lot of stuff in the process. I'm going to send Phil the link to the Excel file that I'm relying on for a bunch of this. Oh. And I'm going to... Exp- so I'm, I, I, when we're done, so we can go in the show notes for the audience. Um, and I'm going to include why... If you, for those who go and take a look at it, I just stopped doing it partway through because I found a bunch of links of people who did the work already. <laughs> and <laughs> multiple directors break the model, but not the directors you probably think. So, nice. we're going to start with a couple of flags up front. Um, all this information, I have tried to flag and not include anything... From the COVID era. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because uh, anything in the COVID era, the numbers are weird. And I know Spider-Man made a whack ton of money. But would it have made more without COVID? That's true, right? Like, yeah. like, well, basically, we're into a position now where everything's messed up because of COVID. We're not sure what the model is going forward now. So all of this is kind of anecdotal history historic yeah data assumptions that we're going to be making yeah and it's really hard to extrapolate we're also going with box office because that is the publicly easily available information and i could was able to get and secure some really good numbers for what hollywood and what investors want on their box office uh not for everyone but for a lot of you know, by the numbers Hollywood investment. The idea is you're after that box office and everything after it is just gravy. Yeah, and that that's an interesting point because I was reading something today on social media 
where there was recently a movie that released into the theaters and their claim was the movie cost $120 million to make. And the worldwide box office came in at, I think, 135 or 139 million for its first weekend. And they were like, well, that means there's going to be a sequel. And my immediate thought was not necessarily because I'm like, you know what? Like, the returns on movies don't necessarily dictate if it's profitable, there's going to be more. The degree of profitability would be what I would think is what's necessary for investors to return to that risk. What well, right? that the sequels never really do quite as well as the original. If the original is just scraping by worldwide, not even in the major domestic market, it's probably targeted at. I, mean, I have concerns about that. We're going to talk about that some more as we go, because I, I pick up what you're laying down. You know, that feels intuitive. But as we're going to see, once you start getting into this new transmedia, huge conglomerations, your MCUs, your DCEUs, how, like the sequel can do better, a lot better. And yeah. how much of it is toy sales? How much of it is video game sales that tie in? Um, so there's a lot here. Uh, and off the top, if y'all like this and you want us to delve into other things related, let us know in the comments or email Boris or yell at us on social media. Phil's going to give you those links at the end. But like, I would love to go into like the editor questions on some of these, but literally it was a matter of like, that is so far in the weeds that we didn't know if anyone was going to care or not. Um, I'll I'll do a hit right off the top actually for us. I'm just going to let people know that you can track us down on our website at www.itscanonpodcast.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook at It's Canon Podcast. And yeah, you can email us at show at itscanonpodcast.com. So I just want that information to be there up front just in case you don't make it to the end and listen to our boring spiel then. Woo! Also, uh, it's worth noting, um, I didn't include streaming or direct-to-video films from any of these people solely because what those profitability is is such a black hole, and I was not able to get the sources in time for the show to figure those out. So we're just talking directors at the box office. It's just like Nintendo guarding their online sales. Yeah. We don't know. We only get retail. So Uh, up top, I'm going to flag everything with a quick question for Phil and a fun little thing of... So three genres... There are three genres of film that outperform everything else by a wide margin. One of those three genres is horror. And this is for ROI. This is for the money in to the money out. That does not, not for sheer box office pull, because if you're doing a sheer box office pull, it's, it's science fiction and it's action. But for return on investment, there are three genres that beat everyone else by a mile. Number one is horror. Not number one. One of the three is horror. What do you think the other two are? And I'll give you a clue. Both of these probably actually beat horror in terms of money in to money out. Money in to money out is a loaded question. Because obviously you've kind of tipped a hand in saying the action slash sci-fi. But I think that the money in is really high on that front. That's exactly what the concern is. That one I don't think is as easy to quantify. It's obviously like horror to me is synonymous with horror is kind of jokingly low budget. Right? A lot like, of horror is low budget. 
you're getting B-class actors, maybe a B-class story, and people love the kitsch, and maybe it far outdoes what you thought it would do, and it really gains traction in the theater. So I totally buy that. Yeah, That was the easy one for me. Yeah, it's why. Yeah, what are the other two genres? A comedy. No, a comedy because I'm thinking production costs would be lower. No, nope. it's like a modest comedy. Wow. Mm-mm. Uh, uh, romantic drama. Nope, also wrong. Damn it! The best two ROIs are in order. Porn. I was gonna say if we're classifying porn in this, <laughs> I didn't because want to go there. Here's the thing: if viewer, you were to point out, "Hey, porn doesn't have theatrical releases anymore." Correct. Correct. It used to, and the most profitable movie of all time, based upon return on investment. And the reason we use return on investment here is because you don't have to change dollars. You don't have to worry about inflation, because ROI is a ratio question. Okay. The most profitable movie of all time is Deep Throat. Oh, yeah. Because on a budget of $25,000, the film Deep Throat came out in 1972 and made $22 million in 1970s money. That is a return on investment of 90,000%. So Jim Henson and and Frank Oz made up of like fifty percent of that return, right? <laughs> from from the stories back in the day, with the, what those two gentlemen would find themselves doing in the afternoon in a movie theater. Yeah. Okay, like observing cinema. I'm not insinuating anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one is Christian films. So the oh. second biggest return on investment of a film ever is actually Facing the Giants, um, which is a sports movie and a Christian drama. So then you have Paranormal Activity, which is horror. And the fourth is Fireproof, which is from 2008. The budget was $500,000 and the profit was $57 million. Whoa. So let's talk really quickly about Christian movies. Uh, These movies often make... Everything I've found is, you know... They top out, I think the, the most I've seen one make is only like $100 million. So they aren't, like, they're making profits, but they don't make your half a bill. Right. But the other side of it is Christian movies are able to operate on ludicrously low budgets. Like, well, it's, uh, like it's so yeah. based programming, right? Like, yep. it's got an audience that it mm-hmm. delivers to. Yep. The audience is going to consume it. And then the thing is, is that I would honestly, sincerely believe that I think the audience, like the patron for that movie, knows or has a strong belief that the money is going to be used like to a good cause. In well, opinion. we're not going to dig into that issue because no, I, Maggie Mainfish has done some awesome reporting on where that money actually goes. And I would imagine that that's quite a little cottage industry, yes. Yes. So Facing the Giants, which made a profit of $38 had a budget of $100,000. In movie terms, that is is literally nothing. Yes. Fireproof had a budget of half a million and made a profit of $57 million. 
What it's worth noting is the reason Christian movies have such good ROIs is those tiny budgets. And that is because a lot of the time, uh, your major stars are working below rate. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, your sets are all donated. Your craft services and food is all donated. And in movies like Fireproof, which is includes a lot about being a firefighter, the city of Albany, New York, gave access to all like their entire fire station, members of their fire crew, all of their like kit and stuff, free of charge. To making right their Yeah. It was just free of charge. Um, so it's worth noting that means government that means New York State government funds subsidized that movie. I mean, just a fun little thing. But yeah, Christian movies and porn are the best too in terms of your money who, in to your money out. Who would be, who would have thought those two were riding shotgun? Man. Yeah. <laughs> like, talk yep. about uneasy partnerships there. Yep. I, I, I just, you know, I want to go back to the porn thing for a second. Sure. And the internet has changed the way pornography is obviously consumed mm-hmm. in a massive way. I don't, I don't even, I can't even conceive of how it is profitable right now in the sense that I guess there's this whole benign industry of just ads and whatnot, but it blows me away that at one point you would be like, Hey, what's going on tonight? Thinking about going to see a movie. Oh yeah. Which movie? I was thinking, you know, there's this new sci-fi epic starting up. No, I'm going to go play with my gentleman bits at the porn theater. Like, and that's a thing. Like, that's a, I'm going to, like, I can't imagine what went on in the, like, these theaters obviously predate anything that I was capable of encountering as an adult. I can't even imagine how seedy, excuse the pun, that whole thing was. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of bits to actually break down there. Um, I'm happy to do. Th- I'm actually happy to do this quick diversion. I'm curious. Yeah, I'm just um, curious because I actually know offhand. So part of it was if you actually go back as far as like the 1930s, 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, part of why movie theaters would just they would just run films back to back to back to back to back, especially in big cities like New York, and they were like they knew that there was a lot of sex and stuff happening in the theater. And the reason is because it was a dark place that you could find a modicum of privacy. And if you're looking at the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and you're a young single person, you don't usually have your own apartment, much less your own bedroom a lot of the time. Right. Um, you might live in a boarding house, which means that you're not allowed to bring members of the other gender over. Um, boarding house is where you'd live in someone else's home, usually with like a dozen other people, which each you'd have a bedroom. And there'd be the person who runs the house, it's their house, and they would literally, like, they would make your meals and tell you, like, when your curfew was and when meals were. And it was a very weird, different thing. So that's part of what propped up that industry for a while and the movie theater industry. And pornographic films just kind of extended that of, you know, part of it was um, young people of all sorts of genders and gender and sexualities. We're looking for a private place that was dark and had covering noise. And sometimes those movies would just be like literally anything that has enough noise 
that if, let's say, the cops were to come in to do an indecency charge, you would probably be able to hear them before they heard you. Yeah, it all, it all makes sense. Now, I yeah, want to put out the warning to the audience about this. And it's, it's a nice, benign warning. It's not an, a, mm-hmm. a, an explicit one. But I did read an article based off of those points yep saying the reason why you should never do that in a movie theater today yep okay is because they're monitoring the crowd (laughs) with night vision camera gear and it's not to catch the perviness it's to catch the people trying to record the movies yep but they catch the people doing the pervy stuff and the minute the pants come off or certain motions are are occurring the staff know to go in and break it up and ask them to leave yeah so kids ladies and gentlemen behave yourself at the movie theater thank you very much yes (laughs) so with all that out of the way it's worth noting that um i didn't include any like any overtly christian director stuff in here um or any porn director stuff in here, because Fair. number one, those are like their own sub niches. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you know, rock on for either one of those. If that's your cup of tea, rock on. It's a free market. Do what you want. Yeah. Enjoy. But, but it is very strange to try to like try to compare that. God's Not Dead to the work of J.J. Abrams in terms of ROI, right? Like it's. It it feels like we're we're comparing unlike things. Yep. And I am flagging like God's Not Dead is one of the top twenty five movies of all time for ROI. Like these Christian movies make bank on their investment. That's good. Good for them. Um, I I won't be watching them. I'm sorry. Yeah. So yeah, we we so we tried to focus on the directors that are are doing your big blockbusters and how much they're making. Hey, it's pop culture. It's a pop culture yeah. podcast. It's yeah. not a Christian pornography podcast. So, so I'm going to the relevant. Data. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to start up front with the two directors that broke all of my equations, <laughs> and I couldn't use them because, for very different reasons, they just broke everything. Oh, Any guesses Lord. on who they are, Phil? Uh, so these like, like big names big names um, huge names um one of them might be the person who has and i couldn't find i couldn't find a source to specifically say this but i think is the person with the most blockbusters directed of all time whoa i think well uh, the the other one is spike lee and the reason we pulled spike lee is because he does drastically different kinds of movies yeah right because he'll do your inside man which is like a traditional thriller but then he'll do like do the right thing which is like a a comedy about racism in new york but it's like a black comedy if you've ever seen it like that ending is brutal but he very consciously does movies like that knowing they will not have a very good roi but he does because he's, he thinks it's important and it's well, important the he's art. He's passionate about it. He's passionate about 100%. it. hundred percent. And I agree with him. I'm like, rock on, make your movies. But it means that like the data for him is so weird 
because you'll have movies that make like solid returns. It's your Inside Man, which is a good movie. But then he has all these movies that don't earn back their money. So it's just, it makes Spike Lee look like a terrible director by this metric. Um, I think the yeah. other one might be, oh man, it's so, it's so big. I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to throw it out there and I know I'm wrong. George Lucas. Oh, no. George Lucas almost breaks the numbers, but it's actually the person who does more. Spielberg. Spielberg. Yeah. I was thinking was Spielberg does so much that it just it just messes up a bunch of the algorithms. So I, you see, like that's where I was thinking George was because George's movies usually aren't even about the movies. It's all about the subsidiary deals on yeah. investment and you know the toys and the merch and the this well, and the that. And it's just so difficult to categorize what the, the totals are unless you know you're looking at just an isolated box office. But even then. Yeah, someone like Spielberg does a lot of different shit. We're going to swing around back to George. We're not done talking about George. Okay. The issue with Spielberg is he has so many movies. <laughs> and we're just doing movies he's directed. Dude's directed over 25 blockbusters. Yeah. His average profit per film is a surprisingly small $100 million. But that's because he does everything from the BFG, which I think is his worst performing movie ever, Mm -hmm. all the way up to E.T., which is his best performing movie ever. Yeah. In terms of profitability. But he does so much, and he does so many weird different things, that it just, the algorithm doesn't explain him well. Yeah. I can, I can, you know what, like, to be honest, I would think that, even if you tried to do that with Spielberg, I think it would have to be a time-based thing, like his early to mid work. And then once he made it, like, you know what I mean? You could say once he got to E.T., then at that point beyond, he had the Midas touch and the numbers just don't make sense, right? Because Spielberg, like, let's face it, can basically take a crap in a jar and people are going to just splank down the money and just go... I'm going to go see it because Steven said it was good. I mean, it's worth remembering. He has four movies that didn't break back. That He has four movies between 2000 and 2017 that did not earn back their, that were non-profitable. Really? Yeah. Which ones? Uh, Big Friendly Giant, Adventures of Tintin, Munich, AI Artificial Intelligence. None of those shocked me. I mean, I thought I, I was surprised by Adventures of Tintin. But I just thought it was a very charming movie. But I also oh. think that it was one of those movies that I think did better on because I remember it hit Netflix and people went nuts for it. I, there's no doubt in my mind. I've never seen it, <clears throat> but there's no doubt in my mind that it would do well on a streaming service. Mm-hmm. Do I think it would do well? I think that that to me sounds like a vanity project in the sense that. He knows there's a good story. It was something he grew up with and he wanted to pay it back. Like he wanted to to do a solid. It's just like if George Lucas was doing Flash Gordon. Would I think that it's a good movie? What what George Lucas did? God, no. It's probably going to be hokier than Hoke. But would George be happy with it? Yes, because that's what he grew up watching. Right? And it, it feels to me like that would be that. So 
that doesn't surprise me. My biggest one would maybe be artificial intelligence, but I, you know, around the same time you had minority report come out, uh, yep. which I guess did well enough because of the stark power in that versus Haley Joel Osmond on AI. And that was a challenging movie. I still think it's good though. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the crap out of that made me feel yeah. really weird about a lot of stuff, but those were good questions to feel weird about. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, it very much. If you look at Spielberg's movies, they kind of fit into four clusters, and it's really his his non profitable movies, which interestingly are all after the year two thousand. He's got his kind of mid tier movies in terms of profitability, which is Arnestad, Minority Report, The Terminal, War Horse, Bridge of Spies, and Hook. Makes sense. He then has his his solidly profitable movies, which there's a lot, but at the high end is Lost World, Jurassic Park, and the low end is Schindler's List. Makes sense. And then he has his real good profit movies, which is E.T., Jurassic Park, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where do you? I wonder where Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That was a competition. No, it was Jaws and Star Wars, the competition, and yep. Jaws won. Close Encounters made, barely made a profit of more than $100 million. That's one of my favorites by him. Great movie. Yep. But, yeah. Yeah, that and, and Poltergeist. Yep. Like, I mean, I think that, neither of those movies turns up is going to turn up again in any of our discussions today. <laughs> and that's okay. But I'm going to give those movies a shout out because it's a lot of the time people forget that, well, maybe not with, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but with Poltergeist, I think it's easy to overlook the fact that Steven Spielberg was highly involved in that. So yeah. it and doesn't again, really strike me as his type of movie. We only talk about directors as well in this, which is then it's like a whole other thing. Yeah, then you're talking about production. And blah. So we're now going to get into the ROI numbers. So for our audience, ROI means that for every dollar you get in, you're going to get X back on average. So... Uh, we're going to talk about George Lucas right now really quick because he's a real good example and barely, and the numbers start to break and look weird with him. <laughs> if you look at George Lucas's entire career and you average all the movies he directed, which is only six movies. Yeah, it's low. For every dollar you invested into a George Lucas film, you would earn an average of $46 and 1.5 cents back. That's yeah, not bad. That is very good. He is probably one of the best ROIs you can get on a director. Yeah. 50, almost 50 bucks back on a buck. Yeah. Man, give that man a hundred of them. And part of what breaks that is not Star Wars. Right. It's American Graffiti. Yeah. Which had, for every dollar invested into American Graffiti, you would have gotten $180.20 back. Yeah, because that was the breakout. Yep. That was the, holy crap, where 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 has this guy been? Who is yep. this guy? And it also spoke to a very wide audience, right? Like, that was a time, a, a time captured in, in a bottle, and people really enjoyed going to it, right? Like, it reminded an older generation of their youth. So, good on them. 100%. It's just, that's where, like, movies like that 
throw off averages because averages are always weird. Yeah, but what what what's another one that probably didn't do well? THX. THX. Every dollar in, you still made three bucks. Yeah, which as will on the lower end of the scale. Still well, good, but as we're gonna see, that's not as bad as you think it is. Um, mm. for so really quickly, um, some data points I got for contextualizing this stuff. On average, only three out of every ten Hollywood movies make their money back. Wow, that's a yeah. Like only three out of ten are, pro- are three out of ten are profitable. Seven out of ten are non-profitable, and the idea is. That those three need to make enough money to pay for the other seven. Okay. Before anyone says that that sounds like really bad, it's worth noting that when I took corporate finance and classes on investing, investors often use the same model, but they say one in 10 needs to be profitable. And just that one needs to outperform everything else. Holy cow. And it's worth noting, right? Like those seven aren't all in the sh- aren't, aren't all in the shitter like some of those can be like oh you know we're short a couple of mil yeah fair they, they might not be hemorrhaging money yep. they might just be underperforming for what the hope was yep so for an indie film indie films for every dollar you put in mm-hmm. the goal is to give an average of between a buck ten and a buck twenty-five back to your investors. Okay. So for a Hollywood time. movie, the goal is a buck thirty on average. Oof. Right? So just keep those numbers in mind. Right? So so buck thirty would mean you are hitting the average of what Hollywood wants to see. Which also means you're not gonna get any more work. Right. Man, that that's it's an interesting set of numbers to keep in mind. Yeah. Like, really, like, this is a tight margin industry. Way tighter than I thought it would be. Yeah. And, it, it, yeah, this is, oh, this is, and again, part of that is because is it's those movies that don't make money. And it's also, I think, why you see a lot more sequels and stuff nowadays is they are so much less risky, right? You're, right. you're almost installing a base floor of what you're going to make back. Yeah, it makes sense. So after George Lucas, who do you think was the next best return on investment director I found? Mm. Oh, I... I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hint. At the time I was prepping this data, he only had two movies that had hit theaters that he directed. Tika Watiti? No, Taika had a few movies that didn't do very well, and yeah. it pulls him way down. It's Jordan Peele. Okay. For every dollar you put into Jordan Peele, you get an average of $34.76 back. Wow. And what has Jordan Peele done? His name's not jumping out at me here. Get Out. Okay. Which had an ROI of $56.76. Ooh. Paid and it. Us which had a return on investment of $12.76. Still pretty good change. Both horror movies, it's worth noting. Wow. But much more, like, accessible horror movies. Also, Jordan Peele is now currently considered to be, like, the guy who helped bring back horror. Okay. Right? Like, totally fair. 
if you go to the theaters right now and you're like, oh, wow, there's a lot of horror. Partly it's because of, you know, word in the streets, it's partly because of him and how, how good those two movies are. He's got a new one coming out soon called Nope. Um, yeah. I, and here's something that I'll just say as a tangent. Yeah. All right, for our listeners. I don't know your personal feelings about horror movies, Tyler. Love them. <laughs> okay, for me, I'm not a fan of them at yep. all. Now, when I was growing up, my mom used to watch, actually, this is going to sound really twisted. My mom and I would watch Nightmare on Elm Street together. <laughs> And her point in making me watch it was, number one, I wanted to see it because at the time, the pop culture was so much around Freddy Krueger. Yep. And my mom wanted to watch it with me, number one, because she actually enjoyed it. Number two, she enjoyed dispelling the horror of it. Mm -hmm. She enjoyed deconstructing it for me so that it didn't scare me as much. That's That's a solid mom. Right? Like, she's just like, no, you see, that's fake blood. That's, you know, this doesn't happen in real life, but she took away, she really took away the fun of the horror movie in a lot of ways too, (laughs) because at that point I'd see stuff like poltergeist and it would freak me out. And I guess this was my parents' reaction to it was to, you know, tackle it in a more, uh, uh, family way of viewing (laughs) it. Um, but as a result, I just don't enjoy the genre anymore. And it's not because it's really like the mystique is lost on me. I went and I saw the Blair Witch Project and stuff like that. I caught on to certain pop culture trends yeah, with it. But to this day, I don't enjoy horrors at all. I had a girlfriend who was right into them. And I'm like, no, not doing it for me. Sorry. It's just- Fair enough. I have no interest in the genre. I, I've totally missed out on the screen thing, all that. But I respect the crap out of people who enjoy them, like yourself and your partner and anybody else who finds some nice time together getting scared shitless. Uh, I get a bigger kick out of things like Stranger Things and whatnot when there's a pop culture angle to it. I enjoy that a little bit more. Makes sense. So let's... Do you want to hit a couple of weird directors next, or do you want to start sure. talking comic movies? Oh no, let's, let's do some weird directors first. Cause yeah. I, I have this feeling we're going to take the bloom off the rose for comic book movies. <laughs> it's very weird. So three, three weird directors. We're going to talk Scorsese. Okay. Quentin Tarantino Ooh. and Ridley Scott. Oh, okay. Which Two one of them? Right. Do you think you should invest in? Uh, I, I, I think it's going to be probably Quentin. It is. For each buck you give Quentin Tarantino, you get an average of $7.17 back. That's a good return because I, I see both of those other directors as doing a lot of big misses. Yeah. So. It is worth noting that like Quentin Tarantino has only had one movie that didn't make its money back. Was that Murphy Brown? Oh, that was Death Proof. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Death Proof didn't make its money back, and partly because that was a very weird movie. Um, It was NC-17 or X-rated, depending where you were, which hurts a lot. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the Grindhouse movie pairing, because it was also, I don't know if you'll remember, but it was was a two-parter. 
you got to see Death Proof and oh shoot, what was the other one? Robert, it was a two part. It was two movies back to back. It was Quentin Tarantino's did Death Proof and Robert Rodriguez did a movie that I can't remember right now. I forget it, but I remember them being marketed together. Yeah, and it was very weird and like a very fun experience, but like it was not designed to make money off the block box office. Yeah, because the two of them had collaborated with Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, remember that George Clooney. Yeah, type of thing. And you could definitely tell when Robert Rodriguez took over <laughs> in that movie because <laughs> they were at the titty twister. We all remember. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you see, I went through this thing of really worshiping Quentin Tarantino and just thinking it was the most brilliant movie maker of all time. And I started falling off the wagon around Death Proof. I mean, Death Proof was a re- Death Proof was he just wanted to do a funny bit. Yeah. And I don't know. It. it just didn't hit for me. And then, you know, on returning to some of the other stuff when he started getting back into it, like Django Unchained, and then you know what I mean? Like he started getting back into the storytelling. And I was just like, I really enjoy the intricate story and the and you know what I mean, like everything about it. I just really enjoy when Quentin gets his teeth into something that's that's got a lot of meat to it instead of depicting yeah the yeah. meat house grindhouse death proof thing it is worth noting that quentin tarantino suffers from what a lot of other directors also suffer from which is after your couple of breakout hits regularly they they tend to revert towards a mean mm-hmm. of between three bucks and 450 per movie and we're gonna see that a lot sorry for per like per dollar in um well, you right? can only like, have a breakout like one time, right? Like you can so, only surprise people once. Like, holy shit, reservoir dogs. My god. Right? I mean, so and reservoir then, dogs made uh eleven bucks for every buck you put in. But was right. not his breakout. What was pulp fiction? Twenty five seventy four per dollar you put in. That was his breakout. <laughs> yep. But Jackie Brown was. I I, oh, yep. Sorry. Go ahead. With Jackie. Made, I'm curious. Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume One both made you five bucks per buck you put in. Kill Bill Volume Two is four bucks. And then Inglorious Bastards and Django are uh, three three dollars fifty nine cents, three dollars and twenty five cents respectively. Um, it is worth noting that while this is happening, the amount of money per Quentin Tarantino movie like in revenue is going up. It's just going up roughly, you know, in tandem with how much more it costs to make. Well, the thing is, is that to me, when you look at reservoir dogs, yep. You had a fairly low budget, um, 1.2 million actors, actors being largely portraying the roles. And then when you look at Pulp Fiction, it's kind of like, Quentin knew like the industry was like go for it right yes. and 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 he really went for it and and the marketing was was behind the movie a lot when yeah. you look at you know Jackie Brown to me I'm like they know the commodity at this point you know that you're the the Quentin Tarantino audience and as well I think that you're starting to chase Things like, I, you know, Inglorious Bastards is a great example of, I want an all-star cast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Quentin going, 
no, we're not going to go with an actor's actor, even though they could do a great job. I want Brad Pitt. I want, you know what I mean? Like he's yep. going for it. So I will tell you the funny story. I think I've, I've said it on here before about living in a small town Yep, and going to see Pulp Fiction in the 90s. And I was of age. I was happy to go see an R-rated. I think it was R-rated. And I sat in a little shitty theater in Newmarket here. Uh, and I watched opening night of Pulp Fiction. Yep. And I was laughing so hard at the scene where, you know, a, a man gets his innocence taken. I was yeah. laughing so hard when Marvin's head exploded yeah. in the back of that car with John Travolta casually holding the gun because I understood how Quentin was making you uncomfortable to make that funny. Yep. Right? Like there was an absurd relationship going on between a Quentin Tarantino audience and what was being put on film. However, the coup de gras was when Marvin's head went off as the theater was emptying of the weak stomachs that couldn't handle this movie. Yep. One guy turned to me cause I was in tears laughing and he said, you really are a sick fucking bastard. Wow. Walked out. And I'm just like, Oh my God. I just can't like I, the joke was on him. He didn't get it. And I went back to see the movie in that same theater that weekend and everybody in the theater got it. And I felt so much better about myself. When the entire theater laughs and Marvin's head goes flying. Everywhere. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it's, yeah. Quentin, you know, is, he's got his own market. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was such a, a pop culture moment. Like that the nineties was really defining itself and stretching and saying, we can put this on film and it's okay. Yeah. You know there's what I this, mean? Like, yeah, there's a separate thing about why, it, like from a critical perspective, the '90s were probably the best decade for movies. Oh yeah, I did my college thesis on Pulp Fiction. So. There you go. <laughs> and now the worst director I delved into. Oh boy, Scorsese. That doesn't shock me. That's for every dollar you give Scorsese, you get a buck ninety-five back. Sorry, buck ninety-six. At least you get something back. Sorry, <laughs> right. no, no, sorry. That's after Taxi. Okay. I divided his pre and post taxi. Okay. Because average, including taxi and Alice doesn't lie, which are his two big movies. If you include those two, you get an average of $3 and four cents back. Okay. So post taxi Scorsese is not bringing the seats like he used to. Um, it's worth noting that his second movie boxcar Bertha appears to have fallen into a black hole and no one has the box office numbers for it. Interesting. So audience, if you can find those box office numbers, I would love to run it. I don't know how much that movie was. <laughs> I have a note of it might have cost $600,000 to make. No one's quite sure. Wow. That, that, I mean... That the people who finance that are swimming with the fishes. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a big movie, but yeah, I mean, I will say Scorsese appears to be a director that the less money you give him, the better. Fair. 
that that's that I can see that statement probably holding true for a few directors, to be honest. We're going to come to that more. It, it, Scorsese is interesting because a lot of directors like Quentin Tarantino, as we talked about, of as their career goes on, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger budgets. And Scorsese has had like repeated times where his budgets will all of a sudden take a huge dip. I'd be curious. I, mm-hmm. I Now that we're th- talking about this and realizing it, I don't know. There's two directors that I would love to plug into this equation. I don't know if you did them, but M. Night Shyamalan. I didn't do him. I would be really curious to know the breakdown on him. And number two would be Kevin Smith. I didn't do either of those. Um, The reasoning being, they're not blockbuster dudes. No. Um, I do know also uh, from some related research that M. Night Shyamalan is much like David Lynch. In that he has one movie that did so well, it <laughs> screws up all of the rest of his data and makes his average look very high, despite the fact nothing else was near it. Well, and, and that, that would be the real meat of the potatoes, right? The meat and potatoes for me is that I think, like, you know, Seven and whatnot is just going to just be this this light that just gleans over everything. And then you're just going to see a lot of failure, like a, yeah. a lot of box office rejection. Put it that way. Like, yeah. I mean, what does it for M. Night Shyamalan is split, which off of which is off of a budget of five million made one hundred and three million. Okay, um, it's that. worth noting that James McAvoy alone would now cost you five million dollars. Hmm. Uh, right. It, it's super weird. Um, I mean, M. Night Shyamalan is 100% a director that it appears the less money you give him, the better. Yes, and that's that was ultimately... Those two people, to me, would be directors that the less you give them, the better they are. I think they're challenged. They get more creative with the limited resource. Because when you look at Clerks, which was shot for, you know, what, $25,000, like Kevin selling his comic book collection and taking out all kinds of credit card debt. When you look at that compared to his next movie, Mallrats, which yeah. I'm pretty sure hemorrhaged money and well, actually had a budget. Like the reason I didn't do Kevin Smith is actually, I did some, I did some research into whether or not I should cover Kevin Smith and mm-hmm. multiple people who are smarter about movies than me basically took the position of Kevin Smith. Doesn't make movies for the box office. Yeah. Kevin Smith for good or ill makes movies to be watched at home on your CRT television. Even his modern movies are made to be watched on a CRT television. Yeah. And, and I think there's, there's some listening to that. I think Kevin Smith is, and I would argue that some of his stuff now especially shows his age, but he is a nineties early aughts guy. That's his era. A Kevin Smith movie. Like let's face it is you're going to sit at home. Yep. You're going to roll a joint. And yep. you're going to laugh hysterically at it. It's like watching Sausage Party or something. Like, it's just meant to be consumed while under the influence of something. So, so I would do a slight pushback. I would say a Kevin Smith movie is meant to be watched with a joint and caffeine. Yeah. 
right? It's like you want to be high, but you want to be in like an energetic high and like playing with it. I think sausage party is you get really high mm. and you're drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, they're both high movies, but there's a slight difference. Yeah. Um, and that's totally fair. Yeah. And, and, and like Kevin Smith is not super my jam, but I, I get who he's for. And I think that that he is very much like that spirit of people just just a little older than me. Yeah, and you're talking to him right now. Right, it's exactly what I'm getting at, right? Is it's like Kevin Smith is a little bit too much of like remember the 90s and I'm like, yeah, I hated the 90s. <laughs> I was I was 11 and lived in rural Manitoba. Fair. So, what's what's the deal with our last director out of those three, Ridley Scott? Cuz this one you've been teasing over me for a while now because Ridley has been in the news a lot lately and yes. seems to have an opinion whether we want to hear it or not. <laughs> so Ridley Scott has not had a great ROI on a movie. So Ridley Scott underperforms the Hollywood average. Based upon what people say you want to make on a Hollywood movie, Ridley Scott shouldn't get hired. <laughs> That doesn't surprise me. Um, the movie he has made two movies that lost money, and they were his third and fourth movies. Oh no! White Skull, which for every dollar you put in, you got twenty-seven cents. Wow! And GI Jane, which for every dollar you put in, oh. you got ninety-six cents back. Wow! It's also worth noting that a lot of his movies don't even double your money, which from a Hollywood perspective for, for a blockbuster guy is not good. Um, it's worth <laughs> noting like, like Blade Runner. Yeah. The block, like, again, theatrical release underperformed. Yep. Oh yeah. That everyone movie everyone knows that if you know Blade Runner, but also like the list of his movies that didn't, that didn't even double their money. Is like Black Hawk Down, Robin Hood, All the Money in the World, Exodus Gods and Men, Matchstick Men, Kingdom of Heaven, Goodyear. All of those didn't double the money. Wow. Which, like, as we're going to see, comparing to the, 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 the big names in blockbusters, these don't do well. What about Alien? How, how did it Alien is his saving grace, having made... $9.66 for every dollar you put in. Okay. So that was the, the one. Like, we have to remember something about the movie Alien, all right? So just so our audience recalls. Yeah. That movie was one of the first movies when I was a kid. I watched it. And I realized what movie making was about. Because the spacesuits that they used aboard the Nostromo had hockey gloves. Yep. the gloves yep. and i was watching it going that's a prop that's a canadian staple prop yep and maybe you won't notice it in the states because hockey's not as big but it stood out right away to me and i'm like oh they they can't move their thumbs because those things are you know it's, it's this a locked in straight yeah. line so um, yeah yeah i was just like oh so they just spray painted that and that's a spacesuit yep okay if you, if you cut out alien Ridley Scott makes an average of $2.28 per dollar you put in. 
which is still not terrible in Hollywood terms. No, that's that is not good in in blockbuster terms. In blockbuster, no, but yeah. I mean, like, like he could be yeah. movie himself to a career. Yep, it is worth noting. You know, The Martian is his second best ROI film ever. Interesting. But I think that was a combination of the power of that book and the cultural moment and Matt Damon. Yep. All those things combined. Yeah. Plus, it's worth noting, part of that is The Martian was one of the first really big movies in, like, not the one first. The Martian did really, really well in China. It's worth noting. Um, If you think about the plot of the book and or the plot of the movie, um, the Chinese government is an important part of it. And Uh, yes. China is involved in movie making a lot right now. Um, and they like funding movies that are pro China propaganda. Um, if you think yep. about The Meg starring Jason Statham, if you think about um, uh, Great Wall, like China loves some movies right now that have a white lead but makes China look good. Yeah, and apparently they have a problem with, um, with Disney, right? Like with some of yes. Disney's movies because stances from actors etc yep uh, being publicly outspoken can be a death knell for your project if it was targeted for a chinese market 100 percent, 100 percent. politics um, politics but yeah it's worth noting that his his alien movies are among his better performing broadly speaking um you know covenant made $2.48 for every dollar in. Prometheus made $3.10 for every dollar in. I like Prometheus and Covenant. <laughs> they were decent. Yeah. I mean, I think, separately, I think Ridley Scott is too enamored with his own early work and needs to, like, keep being inventive. But Yeah, he needs to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that that well is too tempting to go back to, especially if they're going to be strong performers. You know, the the words are always there that he wants to revisit X, Y, and Z. And even with when we talked about on the show, um, the uh, the the show that he did with the androids, right? Raised by Wolves. Yeah. We're like, that's supposed to be a separate world from Alien. And yet there's tie-ins. Right? So it is like, worth, yeah. Yeah. Like he's doing this. And he's openly talked about the fact that the Blade Runner world is in the same world as Aliens. Allegedly. I don't know if he can actually confirm that because of a bunch of other rules about who owns what IP. About who owns what IP, yeah. True. Yeah. Hmm, um, it's interesting. Yep. He likes to he likes to itch the audience on, so to speak. Yes. So comic movies. Mm-mm. So we're gonna speak broadly here. We're talking anything Marvel or anything DC. Uh, broadly speaking, this further supports the, in general, Marvel movies have a better ROI than DC movies. Not shocking. However, there are two standout directors from the Marvel side who bring back... Um, the first one, for every dollar you put in, you're gonna get about $10 back. Whoa. And the second one, for every dollar you put in... Oh, no, she's not on the Marvel side. Never mind. Yeah. And do you know who that is? Who the best ROI is in the Marvel side? To be honest, 
I'm going to say this, and I think the audience, there is going to be a portion of the audience that is there with me. Yep. I think largely with the MCU movies, I get less concerned about who's directing it yep. because I feel like it's basically produced by a brainchild council yeah. that's sitting there guiding everything. Like uh, it, it To me, when you see the success of a character or a movie, you go, I'm more interested in the actor or the success of the comic book character than I am about the production facility because it just feels like the big machine at Disney is driving. Yep. But so who is it? Ryan Coogler. Okay. Who did Black Panther? Yeah. Uh That's his cool. his movies, Fruitvale Station, had an ROI of nineteen point three. Creed was four point three four. Mm-hmm. And Black Panther was $6.74. All great films. All great films. And, and you, he, he got a lot of leeway, I think, with all of those characters. He's definitely yeah. able to leave an imprint of, of his work. So. I think he's old. Yeah, I think you're right. He, I think he also knows how to play well with others. Yes. An essential skill. I think that if we're in a transition for a moment to someone... Because you, you did an example of whether or not a movie comes out of a brain trust. Mm-hmm. Or, or a little bit of a sidestep, because this is a great transition. We have one director who, every time he works, when he works with Disney, makes a worse ROI than his non-Disney films. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and do you know who it is? Who? It's one Rian Johnson. <laughs> Oh, we're kicking out the hornet's nest. Numbers don't lie. Hit Brick, Looper, and Knives Out all significantly outperformed Last Jedi on an ROI basis. Yeah. That being said, Last Jedi had by far the biggest box office. Yeah. It, like, oh. hey, four, like four times Knives Out. Let, let's just look at the fact that Yep. A Star Wars movie, even if it's laden with that much controversy, I'm not even going to put an opinion out about it. When it's laden with that much controversy, is still going to gate like madness because okay. it's Star Wars, and the and fans that have to see weekend. it in order to talk about it. Right? That opening weekend that was bonkers. I was there in a pre-release show. Yeah, me too. And I, I walked out, and I was just like, I don't know if that's the Star Wars I was expecting. And I didn't go back to it. And that's, I think with Force Awakens, I was looking for any excuse to go watch that movie again. Like, huh. I came home and I was like, hey, dad, when's the last time you went to the movies? Oh, like 20 years ago. Come on, my treat. You know, like, let, let's go to a matinee here. Uh, you know, uh, people like dates and everything. Have you seen the new Star Wars? No. Let's go see it. Rogue One. Probably saw it about 20 times in the theater. Could not get Rogue One. Rogue One, I think, is one of the one of the Star Wars movies that improves the most with more watches. Yes. And that's what I was finding in, in my return to the theater. Because the first the Force Awakens for me was just yay, Star Wars is back. And and it didn't suck, right? It was this it was predictable. That's our JJ Abrams, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, with Last Jedi I, and Rise of Skywalker, God forbid, and Solo, uh, once was enough in the theater for me. <laughs> I and yeah, I, I can only yeah. imagine that that hurts the box. 
for those, you know, movies by committee. Um, we'll see. We'll see with some of these other numbers. Um, <laughs> you know what? Speaking of movies by committee, let's go to Patty Jenkins. Oh boy. So Wonder Woman. This is Wonder Woman. So it is widely discussed whether or not Wonder Woman 84 was hurt, like whether or not that was Patty Jenkins's mistake or that was the committee's mistake. Um, I think we, in our analysis of that, we broke down where we could see three different directors fighting in that movie. <laughs> at least two, at least JJ Abrams two. and Patty Jenkins. Yeah. Um, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 is technically in that COVID range. Yep. Um, but based upon the box office, it lost money. I'm not surprised. That was a, one of the first direct to stream. Yeah. Big yeah. movies, right? Like, so I, I, so I did run the average for Patty Jenkins, both with and without Wonder Woman 84. And it's okay. worth noting... That even with Wonder Woman 1984, she outperforms a lot of big names in terms of ROI. So her average, including Wonder Woman 84, yeah, is $4.78 per dollar in. That's pretty good. Without it is $6.75. That's even better. And now we're going to get to the four big names to compare against that. Here we go. Buckle up. Four big names. So these are the ones that started this. These are your Zack Snyder, J.J. Abrams, Michael Bay, and Christopher Nolan. (laughs) All known for huge swings. Culturally, undeniably, they've had huge hits. Um, God, that list makes me cringe. (laughs) It's worth noting, I did run the numbers for Christopher... I did run the numbers for Tenet for Christopher Nolan. Mm Mm-hmm. But I also have the the not including that average for him, okay? Because that that non it that non tenant average bumps him up a few points. Again, another COVID film, right? Like that's why that's why I, I'm flagging it as done separately. Um, we also for Zack Snyder don't include Army of the Dead because it didn't have a box office. Yeah, that's that's between him and Netflix. <laughs> so. Even including Wonder Woman 1984, Patty Jenkins outperforms all four of those men on an ROI basis. Wow. And the, the funny thing about Patty Jenkins is the, the news is all awash with conspiracy theories that she's pulled off of her Star Wars project. I mean, yeah, that's... Like, yeah, that's going to be a thing. It speaks to maybe she doesn't play well with others on these movies by committee. If Wonder Woman 84, we can definitely see something was rotten in Denmark. Maybe that carried over when, you know, Lucasfilm are there saying, when we say jump, your answer is how high. And Possibly. not doing that, but maybe there's something else going on. Who knows? I also think that Patty Jenkins is widely disliked, which leads to a lot of media coverage being sensational mm-hmm. on her. Okay. Um. I mean, I'm, you know, somebody we've talked about, um, uh, uh, Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy, am I about right? Yep. yep. She just, whether she's good or not, she's just disliked. Yeah. Well, again, as a as a producer, her record speaks for itself. 
She's that's in and, and that's part of what we're trying to do here is look at what the actual records be. Yeah. It is worth noting that you know, Patty Jenkins only has three movies under her belt. Yeah. So one big two big successes pull that number up a lot. Right? But one yeah. of Patty Jenkins' successes is Monster, which was an eight million dollar budget and made sixty four million. That's a great movie. Great movie. Yeah. But those smaller budget movies with a good ROI, that bumps your number right up. Yeah. And that put her on the map. Yep. hundred percent. But that brings us to stuff like, but yeah, she outperforms all four of those fellas. Um, we're going to do Christopher Nolan first because the other three, I think are better discussed as a, as a group, as a compare and contrast. Okay. Christopher Nolan is the odd fellow who if we're not including tenant where he did really well and then dips below the at hollywood average and then recovers okay so like his first two movies are following and memento okay which both have very small budgets yeah and then make real good money yeah um following makes eight dollars and eight cents for every dollar in Memento makes $4.44. Okay. Insomnia, Batman Begins, and Prestige all make less than a 300% return on investment. So for every dollar you put in, uh, you're getting $2.74 back at the best. Let's not forget, like, Batman Begins was a big money project. I mean, it was $150 million to make. And the box office was three hundred and seventy-three million. Yep. So I'm, you know, I'm just saying, like that was a real landmark movie. Yep. Well, and then you start to see it. Whereas we talked about whether or not sequels make more money, The Dark Knight was one hundred eighty-five million dollars. So now that much more of a budget, and made a billion dollars. But that movie was that the one with with uh, uh, Ledger. Ledger, yeah. So the Joker. So that one was, that was a huge draw, right? Like, it was like, a huge draw. Like, you couldn't get away from it. You the marketing not... was phenomenal for that. Yep. Uh, I mean, the other side is I think Batman Begins, post-box office, continued to gain momentum. It, well, if I recall correctly at the time, mm-hmm. when Batman Begins came in, there wasn't, it wasn't the Michael Keaton, Batman, Tim Burton area, right? Yep. Like, it wasn't there wasn't a huge amount of of marketing around it. It was more so like, we're going to do this version of Batman. We know it's going to be super successful. We've secured a great director for it. And then we're going to put it out there. And then the ball's going to start rolling. We like, it was, it was a very chanced contrived thing. In my opinion. I know I, I I'm with you. That movie it was different to time. me, it was like every geek watched it and then went to a bar and talked about how great it was. Oh, 100%. Right? Like, that was, that was the way that that movie built. And then the rest of them were just like, guess what? We're all geeks now. Yep. Like, like let's have fun with this. Yeah. It is also worth noting that, like, Dark Knight Rises was twice the budget of Batman Begins. Right. Um, and made one point. Oh, eight, one billion dollars. Yeah. So an ROI of three dollars and sixty cents. 
It's a lot of money we're talking about. Yep. I mean, and, and, and interestingly, uh, looking at this data, don't give Christopher Nolan more than more than $150 million. Right. Um, like, separately, like, looking at these numbers, if you give Christopher Nolan $150 million, that's your best bet. As soon as you give him more than that, it starts to go down in value, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. He seems to do really well at about that budget. Well, it's diminishing returns too, right? Like how many times can, and again, I'm broadly speaking here. Yep. But when those movies were coming out, mm-hmm. everybody that I knew was going to see them at least once in the theater. Sure. It was a cultural phenomenon in the sense that we were going to the movie theater more than I've ever gone to the movie theater in my life because we had Lord of the Rings we had constant draws to the box office and much more to me than it is now with Marvel and its assault on viewers in the sense that there's 23 movies for this, you know, genre of, of Marvel MC Eunice, but you're going to space that all out. Like even if COVID never hit, you're going to space that out on DVD home. Yep. You know what I mean? And theater. Like I really want to see a, uh, a, uh, uh, the Hulk, but I'm going to wait for it to be on my television because I'm not going to take that chance on it versus going to see Iron Man in the theater and standing up and cheering. You oh, know what sure. I mean? Like, like there's, there's a different thing, but at that time, those movies, everybody was going to the theater and there's gotta be a cap to that. Like no matter how much money you spend to get that money on film, there's only a, so much an audience can give you to see your product before it just, it's like, well, I don't want to see that 20 times. Yep. I want to go I'm, see Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, I'm with you. So movie theater, co- like companies have to know what that number is, like that well, ratio. I think the other part of it, though, is, is um, for some of these, the ROI doesn't matter. Um, right. Right. Because I think part of Dark Knight Rises and part of the Marvel movies becomes how much are your actor salaries going up? Mm-hmm. Because there are like a bunch of these movies here that their entire budget is less than Robert Downey Jr.'s salary for Avengers. Right. Not even Avengers, like Endgame, where he's making a lot more. Like, actor salaries can very quickly start to balloon. Well, um, and imagine like an Endgame, right? Where you have Chris Evans. You've got so much. I mean, Scarlett Johansson, like, ugh. so much. 100%. Christopher Pratt. <laughs> like, yep. All that, all that stuff is, it is costing money. Like what's James Gunn saying now, this is going to be the last guardians of the galaxy movie yep. that he's well, going to do. So, and I mean, he's part like, of- and they're like Bradley Cooper, no longer, they can't afford him to be rocket. Yeah. So there's, there's a separate part of that, which is also, Screen Actor Guild requirements for contracts and stuff of like, there's only a certain number of movies you can, after a certain number of movies, you have to have a raise right. for a bunch of reasons. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And now the big three, Zack Snyder, Michael Bay, J.J. Abrams, who are the three that brought us to this. Oh, jeez, Michael Bay. Oh, God. Let's talk well, about Michael Bay. 
what's what's uh what's the lady that he always puts in it? Megan Fox. He used to put Megan Fox in a lot. Uh, does her butt get part of the box office here? <laughs> I didn't again, didn't look into actors and stuff. Um, I know, I'm just making a joke because it felt to me like every time a Transformers movie or something would come out, there was going to be gratuitous butt shots. <laughs> I mean, that is, look, it's it, Quentin Tarantino has a thing for feet. Michael Bay has a yeah. thing for butts. Yeah. And minors. Um, <laughs> also, Marky Mark. It's worth noting, I think he has, I think he has as many movies with Mark Wahlberg, Wahlberg as with yeah. Megan Fox. I don't track Mark Wahlberg. Here's my next question for you. Here's the next fun little question. Yes. Do you think Michael Bay's Transformers movies do worse or better than the rest of his movies? Worse. You're wrong. Oh! Well, the, they average, them, so. the average ROI for a Michael Bay movie is $3.70. The average for just the Transformers movies is four dollars and eighteen cents. Oh. oh man, my right? in humanity right now. Um, and the worst part is the best Transformers movie. He didn't even do much for it. That was Bumblebee. That actually had a compelling story. It was. Touching. It's worth. It's worth noting, Dark Side of the Moon, and Age of Extinction. Oh. Yeah. Both had an ROI of above $5. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Excuse my French. Wow. So, it, similar to how we said, you want to give um, Christopher Nolan about 150 Yeah. You want to give Michael Bay about $200 million to 210 Oh, It's all going to be CGI. It's where he puts his money. That and Megan Fox's bum. I mean, no, he's actually notoriously does not pay women well. And he just fires them. Oh, that's true, because they got rid of her. Oh, yeah. They got rid of her very quick. And then he proceeded to do a bunch of interviews where he shit-talked her. Yeah, yeah, she got douched. That's right. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. As a human being, I don't really enjoy Michael Bay. His movies have this style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It maybe works when you're 20 for you, and then it becomes really, really, there's only so many overhead crane shots and whatnot that I can take in a movie, and he pushes that limit. Even he did a a, a movie on, on Netflix with Ryan Reynolds, and even then I'm like, holy shit, there's no mistaking Michael Bay did this. Like The Six Underground? Or... Yeah, something like yeah. that. It was over the cars and everything. And I'm just It was like, the billionaire oh. wanted to create his own yeah. and intelligence. And just the way that they shot the car scenes and everything, I'm like, this is so Michael Bay. Like, this yep. is just Michael Bay. Like, it, And if I can notice that in a movie, I guess maybe I notice it with Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a style, right? Like you say, the feet, but all the, the long dialogue and the no cuts and stuff like that. And now for a gentleman who I don't, I don't know. We're going to talk about Zack Snyder. Um, So we're not including Army of the Dead and we're not including the Snyder Cut. Uh, Nothing against them. They both just were online releases. 
we they don't have box art. them. Yeah, exactly. I, I just, I, that's, you know, you can send your angry email about, I should have talked about that. That's not what we're covering today. You're right. Um, <laughs> do you think Zack Snyder does better with, with non-DC movies or with DC movies? Mm. I'm going to say non. Correct. But it's because of only one goddamn movie. Oh, God. What do you think was his best ROI movie? Uh, I don't have a list of his movies in front of me. Um, Watchmen, Legend of the Guardians... Uh, Sucker Punch, Man of Steel, Justice League, Army of the Dead, 300, Dawn of the Dead, Batman v Superman. Okay. Well, there's some movies I really like in there. But I know that they didn't do well. Like... Mm. Dawn of the Dead probably would be up there. 300. Yeah. 300. 300. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every That was... That was another cultural phenomenon. You had to go see 300. It was, look, every single man going in and pretending they weren't a little bit gay. Yeah. Because that movie had abs for days. Uh, oh. Dawn of the Dead is close. Dawn of the Dead, for every dollar that went in, you got $6.20. Yeah, but to me, that, that was the earlier one, right? Like It is the earlier one. one. Yeah, so 300? I'm thinking that's how he got his job. Like, And then he perfected it with 300. Also worth noting, written by James Gunn. 300 was no gone of the dead oh dawn yeah that makes yeah. sense to me yeah uh yeah it was him and james gunn and um i mean then there's a there's a weird little fight about a thing that snyder changed but anyways um 300 made ten dollars and 26 cents for a dollar in not shocking and then zach snyder slouches into broad mediocrity <laughs> Hey, he's got flair. Sorry, mediocrity like in terms of his ROI. Yes. So remember, the the goal for a blockbuster movie person is $3 out for every dollar in, as we established earlier. Yeah. He misses that more often than he hits it. That's not shocking to me. Justice League, Sucker Punch, Legends of the Guardians, and Watchmen all make less than that. Now, which one is Legend of the Guardians? That is, I believe... That is his Owls of Gahul kid one. That was a great bloody movie. Ewan I don't know McGregor anything McGregor was in it, I believe. Ewan McGregor did voicing in that one. That was such a great movie to me. I, I don't see Ewan McGregor in it. I see Helen Mirren, Jeffrey Rush, Jim Sturgis, Hugo Weaving, Emily okay. Barclay. Sturgis, that's it. Sturgis. That's you're enough. Um, I'm just going to say it. Like, that was one of the best movies, animated movies I've seen. <laughs> I, I did not ever consider that he was at the helm with that. Yep. Now, <laughs> that and Sucker Punch doesn't surprise me. I enjoyed Sucker Punch for what it was. That <laughs> was... A just a totally pulp, oversexed romp. Yep. Of action, like yeah. It was a baseline story and whatnot, but I found it was rather interesting. Like I, I found that there was enough compelling stuff in it. But I would have pegged, I would have pegged that as way earlier in his career. Um, 
No, because it was a it was his weird like self project. It's also worth noting that is the only thing he has done. Soccer Punch Lenny's that's not some, that's not based on someone else's. Right. Everything else he has done is based on a comic or someone else's movie. Okay. Right. Oh, interesting. Legend of Guardians. That's based on a kid series. Yeah. Army of the Dead. No, Army of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead. He's based on Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Zack Snyder. Yeah. Yeah. That they mine from. So your average for Zack Snyder, not including three hundred or Dawn of the Dead, is three dollars and five cents. So horrible. Bare, but barely where you want to be for blockbuster material. Yeah. And it is only above that because of Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Mm, Just as we Superman, like it had a good ROI, though. I think I think solely because of Batman versus Superman is the market. Yeah, because that was the title, right? Like, yeah, who doesn't want to go see it, even if it sucks? Hundred percent, hundred percent versus Superman. Yeah, and then. And then we should talk about his average is four dollars and twenty seven ROI. Hmm. Interesting. And then didn't do as bad as I thought. Judge Abrams. <laughs> Judge Abrams. <laughs> this week on Top Gear, Judge Abrams. <laughs> Not counting Star Wars. What do you think is his best ROI movie? Oh dear Lord! Super Eight. You got it. Yeah! <laughs> I tried to think. Not Star Trek. Not Star Trek. <laughs> yep. Another gentleman who basically only does adaptations of other people's work. He's got Mission Impossible and the two Star Trek films, which again, four blockbuster numbers, both under all, all underperform. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's Mission Impossible 3. I'm not sure if I said that or not. Uh, one of the Mission Impossibles. That's all we need to really know. Yeah. Um, and all three of those, yeah, all three. Like Mission Impossible did the best of those three. Star Trek Into Darkness made two dollars and forty six for every dollar. Oh yeah, that one got killed. Yeah. Um, I remember being underwhelmed by that. Force Awakens made six dollars and seventy six cents, but again, it was the first Star Wars movie. Oh, yeah, like, that's the one I went back to, like, 15 times. Yeah. And it's worth noting that uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker is $3.92. So on an ROI basis, it does not do as good as Last Jedi. That's not surprising. But as we've discussed, that movie is a bit of a dumpster fire. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Like... And audiences know it. I only need to see this one once. <laughs> and then yeah. I will be telling my kids, I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? It is worth noting that um, Star Trek and Star Wars both have this phenomenon of their ROIs are both going down over time. Right. Well, again, it's not shocking. Like, like look, if Disney put the timing in th- that they did with the MCU, if they had a better, like if Lucasfilm had a better tact with those three movies in terms of linking the stories better and making sure that direction and filmmaking understood what 
the project was versus the all out. I know they all deny it, but it's clear to the fan base that there was a bloody war between J.J. Abrams and Rian Johnson. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's specifically what it was. I mean, I, th- I think it was a little bit of a one side. Well, yeah, I, I think I think Rian did what he wanted to do. Yeah, I and mean, then, and then JJ was left with picking it up. Yeah, and he no, took shots. And this isn't, yeah, this isn't me defending Rian Johnson so much as like Rian Johnson said, "I want to do a bunch of crazy stuff and up, like upend the entire cart." Yep, and he was given the go ahead, right? Yeah, because we're noting said, "Sure, thumbs up, do it." Corporate signed off on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like, let's not. I, I, I get it, and that's the damage control. He yeah. doesn't want to get into the fight because the fight to him wasn't there. Yeah. Right. And even JJ will sit here and deny that there was a fight, but it's undeniable in the execution when they take shots, like, you know, about Luke throwing away the lightsaber and stuff like that. There was, yep. there was direct references within rise of Skywalker that went after the event. The last Which, Jedi. On yeah. All of a sudden. Like, <laughs> Yeah, we set up raising nobody. Actually, no, she's not. Yeah, exactly. When you have to, you know, do that and and revet the whole thing in in universe, it's hard not to say, you know, to to go back and do a yeah. little bit of finger pointing there. But that that's life, right? Like, I wish yep. that that franchise because I think it could have challenged on the numbers differently. But it is what it is, right? There's there's numbers don't lie, and audiences. That's one of the great things is that we as audience members get to plunk down our hard-earned money, whether it be for a streaming service or for admission into a movie theater, and kind of determine some of these outcomes, right? Like, this is all numbers that we've helped assemble in terms of our own pocketbooks. 100%. I also think there's some interesting larger stories that come out of this. I mean, I think that... You know, Zack Snyder as the de facto or actual head of the DCEU. Um, I think that tells an interesting story of he set stuff up. But mm-hmm. then, like, Justice League does really poorly. And, you know, you can say part of that is is Joss Whedon. And I think that that's not wrong, given how much especially the story is that him and Joss... Like, Joss Whedon and him did not have the same vision for that movie. Right. I also think... I, I think, per, like with how much re, how much the reshoots cost for Justice League, I think it wasn't ready when he left. Like it, well, it wasn't a good movie then. I believe that when we look back with the context of history, yeah. we know that Zach wanted to do that movie, but circumstances were outside of his control. In the sure. passing of one of his kids, yeah, I believe a suicide. Or some some tragic accident or something, but mm-hmm. anyhow, he had to take family time. He had to be away from the industry, and I respect that. And yeah. and DC were like, "Well, we've got this hot property, and we're just getting killed by Marvel." Like the temperature was pretty intense on DC, as it still is. Yeah, right. Like you're up against you're David against Goliath, and yeah. what are you going to do? Hey, guess what? There's been two really successful. Avengers movies, and they were both under Joss Whedon. Let's grab him. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, he seems to be minting money. It's the same thing as to why 
DC went out and grabbed a, a, a guy like James Gunn who got the boot out of Disney yep. for a while. And they said, hey, help us with this Suicide Squad mess. And, and, and he did it. And, and based upon transitioning it to the show, especially, did real well. Um, yep. I do think it's worth noting another story that I think is here is the demonstration of how much more money is right? Like Wonder Woman, the first one, I think had the lowest budget of any DC movie. Right. And is the best performing in an ROI. I, right. I feel bad for saying this. Yeah. But we all know that in Hollywood, there's a great pay discrepancy if you're a female actress, right? Like if you're a female, you're not commanding as much as a male counterpart, like a Tom Cruise or whatever. Like, that's been part of the battle of Scarlett Johansson and other big name draws. And I think Wonder Woman was a classic example of DC under like putting lower money on a known commodity to see what the reaction would be like yeah. to deliberately underfund a movie and say, well, how many people are going to remember? I remember as a kid watching Wonder Woman on TV. Yeah, you know, and that show and and everything like that. And Wonder Woman was part of the fabric of growing up. Like I talked to my friends who absolutely love Wonder Woman 1984. And I'm like freaking out. Are you kidding me? That movie was a train wreck as a film. But they are so enamored with the nostalgia of Wonder Woman <laughs> that they're they can't see any harm with it. And I'm like, damn, good for yeah. you guys. I'm glad you enjoyed it that much. Yeah, rock on. But I just see that cynically, just looking at the motivation of the studios, I'm not surprised that Wonder Woman is the lowest funded. I'm not surprised that, you know, because they can get away with it. Yeah. And it benefits their pocketbook. Oh, for sure. A lot of these people cannot make the the same ROI they once did. Yeah. Right? I I mean, the ones that break that model tend to have something else going on. You know, your your Lucas, who's because he created and and masterminded this whole IP, Mm -hmm. um, and then honestly got out. Right? It is worth noting that, like, Star Wars Episode 3 performed real well even after per episode two underperformed <laughs> and underperformed i mean only made 5.69 dollars for every dollar in which for a star crazy. wars movie that's below average when i watch that movie i found a way to watch it years ago sure. i can cut it in half just by creative fast forwarding on the dvd yeah because I'm like, I don't want to see, oh, let's have a blossoming romance on, you know, with Padme and that kind of crap. I want to see the action because the action's really good in that movie. <laughs> Unlike Phantom Menace, I'd have to fast forward the whole thing to the end. I also think another interesting thing that goes on here is the difference between how profitable a movie is in raw numbers versus ROI versus critical acclaim. 
right? Because like Michael Bay gets shit on all the time for critical like critical acclaim. He does poorly, but in terms of if you were investing your money, he's better than Abrams and Snyder almost. But isn't that back to I guess currently? Like just looking at today's culture, and that the the debate happens every year when we talk about the Oscars. Yep. That the movies that are put up sometimes for the Oscars, it's not like they're necessarily bad movies or anything, but yep. they're not the movies that are consumed with the highest gate at the box office. Like just this year alone, look at the controversy that's existed around Spider-Man: No Way Home isn't on the the best pictures list, and yet, you know. That yeah. was probably the big winner at the box office, right? Like that, that made a lot, that, that has a lot of attention on it. That has a lot of eyeballs on it. Yep. Right. Like, yeah. That's what people are consuming the most of. And I totally get the argument about the art form versus what is being churned, right? Like the, the, the pulp of the movies right now, where it's like, for sure, superhero movies are ruining the industry and all that. I, I can totally yeah. buy that argument. Like, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that my my attitude personally towards awards um, like the Oscars is that it is as much about planning for the future health of the industry as it is about recognizing good stuff right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that a lot of the time, yeah, the, the movie that made the most money, like, it doesn't need an award as well. Yeah, that's true. And I don't say that to be like, and I, and I you know, I didn't, I'd stick by my original point of like, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home. Like, if you were to watch it and not watch any of the other movies, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah. And even then, it's there's a lot of movies packed in there. Like, to me, I I wouldn't put Spider-Man No Way Home in there, but uh, something like Dune or something. I know you didn't like that, but I'm just saying, like, to me, there's a lot of redeeming stuff. It's a classic story. There's a lot of art being delivered to us, whether or not it's your type of thing. That's fine. That's debatable. That's art. Like that. Yeah, that's... you you could definitely you could definitely make the argument to me about Dune a lot easier than. Yeah, and that was, you know, one of my quandaries about that. But that's life. You know what I mean? Like, like I I, I think the Academy Awards. My dad asked me, he said, why the hell are we wasting all this energy and time on the Academy Awards? And I said, because it's a measuring stick. It's because we, we pull that we pull that information up 10, 20 years from now. And you look at what's there. If you pull that movie and watch it, I'm like, you can sit here and by today's standards go, OK, Gone with the Wind was this or The Sound of Music was that at that time. And where's the movie's 20 years later? Whereas the movie's 40 years later and the Academy Awards shows you a quality section of it. Not necessarily. You can go back and look at the biggest movie and watch that too. in in that context, like there's nothing stopping you. Statistics are statistics, but this is recognizing the art form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the long and the short of it. Um, Again, yeah. like if you want more like this, I know there's a lot of numbers. Um, I'm gonna about to send Phil the link for the show notes. Uh, but yeah, if you liked this and you want more like this, let us know. We have been having a lot of discussions about, you know, how how people seem to want us to go more in depth, and that becomes tricky. Of how in depth is more? 
<laughs> yes. And and how to make it entertaining, right? Like how to to bring the listeners along on the ride and have it be engaging, I guess. Yep. 100%. But I'm pretty happy with where we've arrived in terms of this deep dive. So I want to thank you, Tyler, for hey. all of your hard work in putting that together. Because I, I was the lucky benefactor here in just being along for the ride. So I, I will say that literally earlier today when I was double, check, double checking some of my numbers, I found a website that if I had learned how to use the site, I could have automated this entire process. <laughs> so it, maybe that'll be the follow up in a year or two. Yeah, and we can we can just plug the numbers in and so good find out where we're at, right? So that's excellent. So if you would like to get in contact with us or track down where our our uh, uh, podcast is, uh, you know, around or, or on, you can hit us up at www.itscampodcast.com. You can look us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at It's Canon Podcast. You can shoot us an email at show at It's Canon Podcast. You can find our podcast on any spot where you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere where you find your podcast, you're going to find the It's Canon Podcast. So please leave a rate and review if the platform allows for it. And be sure to tell a friend. So that's our show for this week. Just want to let you know, you know, the best part about the show, it's the, the podcast where we talk about all things geek, all things movies, all things shows, all things comics, all things pop culture. You know what the best part of it all is, Tyler? It's all in canon. Have a great night, everybody. Bye.